Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 88 of Shut Up and Wrestle, a deep dive into pro wrestling history with my guest, one of the all-time great wrestling historians, Tim Hornbaker. You're going to love this one. I have a feeling a lot of you have been waiting for Tim to be on the show, your wish is granted this week. Before we get to that, a few items that I want to get to. First of all, I want to make mention in the past couple of weeks, we have had the passing of Emile Dupree, a very important figure in pro wrestling, because Emile Dupree was one of the last, really, not the last, but one of the last of the old-school, territorial-era promoters. Of course, Emile Dupree, long time through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, promoter of what was known as the Maritimes Territory in eastern Canada, Atlantic Coast Canada. It went under a lot of other different names, but colloquially known as the Maritimes, which he later reactivated in the 2000s, and he was still promoting independent shows in the Maritimes well into the 21st century. He also is the father of Rene Dupree, who a lot of us remember from his run in La Resistance in WWE. That was actually during my time with the company. So again, here at Shut Up and Wrestle, we make mention of the passing of the great promoter, Emile Dupree, and our thoughts and prayers are with his family at this time. Also want to make mention of the new issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, issue number 37, which has Bray Wyatt on the cover. And inside that issue, I mentioned it briefly before, but you will find part one of a two-part essay that I did remembering the great old-school pro wrestling venues, the hallowed halls of wrestling, if you will, the temples, the cathedrals of professional wrestling as we remembered it. And it's a two-parter because I've got about 32, I think it's 32 venues in total, too much to fit in one article. So we included 16 in this first one. We're going alphabetically. You will find such buildings as the original Madison Square Garden in this new issue, as well as the International Amphitheater in Chicago, Comiskey Park, the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory in Tampa, Florida, the Boston Garden. Kobo Arena, of course, in Detroit, Heal Auditorium in St. Louis, among many other locations. As I said, 16 in total in this first issue. There will be 16 more in part two, which will run in issue number 38. And I'll let you guys know when that is available. So please do pick that up. If you can find it on your newsstand, I know Barnes & Noble carries it. Or just go to InsideTheRopesMagazine.com 
and order issue number 37 with Bray Wyatt on the cover. I also want to make brief mention of a non-wrestling project that I now have out because I know there's a lot of um, overlap with pro wrestling and some of these other areas, such as the superheroes book that I recently did. But I had the privilege of contributing to a new anthology book called Giant Beast Cinema, which takes a look at all of your favorite giant monster movies. And since I was the author of Godzilla FAQ, I was invited to take part in this book. I was asked to write five different chapters on five giant monster movies, including King Kong Escapes, War of the Gargantuas, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and others. So I hope you will check that book out if you have an interest in giant monster cinema. It's called Giant Beast Cinema, and it is available now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But right now, let's take a look at this week's long-awaited interview with Tim Hornbaker, or rather conversation with Tim Hornbaker, on the occasion of the publication of his newest book, The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy of the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. We talk about that book. We talk about the legacy of Flair and what he meant to the business. We talk about Tim's other books, like the National Wrestling Alliance history, Capital Revolution, Death of the Territories. There's a lot of stuff that we get to in this week's episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, a true wrestling history lover's episode. So I hope you will enjoy it, and I'll take you to it right now. Okay, so it is my distinct pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody to the show who I was just telling that he should have been a guest a long time ago, and that's a major oversight on my part. He is somebody who, you know, when people ask me who I consider to be the person whose wrestling books I like to read the most, his name is the answer that I give. And in my opinion, he's the best wrestling historian working today. He's been a tremendous help even in the work that I've done, even just his support, let alone his knowledge. He is the author of several books that I know a lot of people, many of the people who listen to this show are familiar with. There was his history of the NWA, which is where I first discovered him, which I remember Dave Meltzer described that book as, you know, if he was teaching a class on the history of pro wrestling, that would be the textbook that he would assign. And I agree with that. He also is the author of Capital Revolution, which was a great book on the McMahon family and, and the history of the early history of capital wrestling and the WWF. Of course, the death of the territories, um, the biography of Buddy Rogers, Master of the Ring that came out a couple of years ago, which was excellent. And most recently, his brand new book just out now, which is the only one of his books that I haven't read yet because I haven't gotten my hands on it yet. But it is a biography of Ric Flair. And it's called The Last Real World Champion. Of course, you've probably figured it out by now. I am talking about Tim Hornbaker. Tim, thank you so much for finally coming on the show. Brian, it's a it's a real honor to be with you today. I'm humbled by your words. And it's just uh, it's great to, to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a thrill for me. Like this is, uh, you know, one of the as somebody who writes about wrestling and researches wrestling this is kind of like my mark out moment this is like my kind of geeky mark out moment because i've been uh god i think the nwa book 
When did that come out? Because I remember I read that book around 2000. I want to say it was like 2011 or something like that. 12. It was, actually it came out in 2007. If you could. Oh, I, I a was a long time. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's right. You know what? Because I actually got my hands on it when I was working, still working at WWE, because I was kind of the curator of their wrestling reference library, which I was proud to take with me when they let me go. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so, that, yeah, that's right. I had acquired that book while I was still there. And then, you know, when I left WWE, I didn't want to know anything about wrestling. I was kind of sick of it and, you know, a little burned out. But then when I came back to it, your book was the first wrestling book that I read. Uh, so that's why I'm th- I was thinking like 2011. And it was just, oh, my God, I, I was immediately a fan of your work. And ever since I appreciate then, you know. that. Thank you. No, no. Yeah, no, my, I appreciate that. My pleasure. And like what I always say is that it's the research for me, you know, like I I always appreciate it when people compliment my work and they especially the chic book and people say that they love it and all that. And but the thing is, with me, I'll always be the first one to say, you know, my greatest strength is is really just in kind of putting words together because I've been a professional writer and I've written about a million things outside of wrestling. And that's where I lean in because I know that there are people out there who could run circles around me in the area of wrestling research, you know, and, and you're one of those people. So just, I'm, I'm sorry, this is like a complete love fest here. I need to rein myself in. I'm I'm a big fan. I'm very humbled, Brian. I, I know you do tremendous work. And again, your compliments for, for me are very much appreciated, but I have to compliment you as well. I, I feel that your your work, you're, you're kind of leading a new charge to write some of these excellent biographies. And, uh, you know, I, I have, my head is completely off to you and what you're accomplishing. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to your next book. But, yeah, you have a fan over here as well. Well, thank you. I, you know, I want to talk about the Flair book, especially. But before I did, there was just a funny anecdote. And this will this will give people an idea of, you know, the kind of work that Tim does and just uh, the, the kind of knowledge that he has. You know, when I was writing the Chic book and I reached out to him just to kind of pick his brain and see what he might know and, and any insight he could provide, he just sort of casually goes, Oh, yeah, you know, by the way, I have some letters that Sam Muchnick wrote to Johnny Doyle and, you know, that they corresponded back and forth and they were talking about the Sheik. If if you'd like to have a look, and I'm just going, yeah, you know what? I think I would love to have a look at that. And, you know, that's what I mean when I say that. It's just like there are things you know, we live in a blessed age when it comes to research and, you know, in general, just with the Internet and everything. But there are just some things that the Internet is not going to give you. And, and that's one of those things. I agree 100 percent. And I think we've been very lucky as researchers and historians in this age here to uh, obtain certain documentation that normally would have been thrown out uh, and I would say that Sam Muchnick uh, letter that you mentioned was something that, again, I, I was very fortunate to get passed to me amongst a bunch of other letters from what I call the Sam Muchnick collection now. And uh, I think a lot of historians and a lot of different uh, people have used different parts of that material in their books. And I think we probably will do that, do so for the, uh, for the, for the future as well. Uh, I think getting our hands on this primary source documentation has been so difficult for us. But once we get our hands on it, it's like gold and we want everyone to share in the the fruits of it. And it's definitely going to be just like the Pepper collection. I mean, 
any kind of old material that we can that we can have and see and it's been preserved this is the the primary source material that we're going to utilize in our books going forward and if we can find more i think it's only going to add to our projects and make them all the better you know i'm glad you mentioned the pfeffer archive because there was something interesting i noticed about that and i don't know if maybe you noticed it too but for people that don't know the pfeffer archive is a collection of documents photos papers just all kinds of things that were saved by the promoter jack pfeffer and they wound up, they're currently now in the possession of the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. And when I reached out, the first time I came into contact with it was, I think, like 10 years ago when I was working on Pro Wrestling FAQ. And, you know, it was kind of, it was incredible what they had. I didn't have the ability to go in person, but it was kind of in disarray. And the people at the time, it was just sort of like uh, all kind of willy nilly. I remember them telling me everything was just sort of like, it wasn't really collated or organized. And that has changed now. And I think maybe it's because there's been such a demand for information and, and pieces of that archive. And, you know, the, the last time I checked in on it, when I was working you know, recently on something, I was amazed to see that now you can search online there, which never existed before. There's like the capability. Like, it seems like somebody sat down and said, hey, there's a lot of crazy wrestling historians that are interested in this stuff and we need, we need to get it in some kind of order. Uh, so we don't drive ourselves nuts. I, I think you're hundred percent correct. I think when they first received it, uh, it was in such a mess. There was no rhyme or reason to it. And I will credit uh, all of what you were just mentioning, all of the organization. And of course he had help, I think from students and other people that work with them. But George Rugg was the individual yes. who was in charge of the Pfeffer collection. And he really transformed that, as you said, from a complete mess of papers and photos into a workable system where a historian now can contact them, look online at their archive, or go in there and spend day after day looking through an organized series of letters, uh, publications, you know, photos, anything related that, or you know, Pepper's financial records. All of that is there to give you a a bird's eye view on the professional wrestling business, literally from the 1920s, I think through the 70s, uh, in his uh, weird way of collecting. And I'm going to say right now, uh, unfortunately, the collection is not complete, but it is definitely complete enough for any anyone who is a historian or researcher or interested in wrestling history to go there and really learn about the sports past. That's great. And I mean, that's sort of like a, a dream trip that I have to take one of these days to actually go out there because I haven't been there. Everything I've done have been has been corresponding remotely with them. But, um, you know, I, I you know, I want to mention, too, before I ask you about the Flair book is one, and this sort of connects to it in a way. But one thing that I really enjoyed and what really got my interest and what showed me that you were somebody who was really interested in digging deeply into things and not just the typical kind of wrestling history we always get is, you know, that that NWA book, which was how I discovered your work. It it really is when it's the it's history of the National Wrestling Alliance, but it really the primary focus is the years when, you know, the Sam Muchnick years. So it's like, you know, from the late 40s through the 50s, 60s, it, it through most of the 70s. And I, I thought that was a really bold thing to do because, you know, when people talk about the NWA now, the first thing that comes to mind a lot of times is Jim Crockett promotions and the 80s and Ric Flair and the Horsemen and all that. 
And really, when you look historically at the NWA, I mean, that that was just sort of like the last kind of gasps of the of the NWA more than anything else. The, you know, the NWA had been this monolith for decades before that was way more associated with St. Louis than it was with, you know, the, the Mid-Atlantic territory. And I and I, you know, I'm sure there would have been a temptation to just kind of focus on the stuff that most people knew about. But the fact that you didn't do that is what I thought was really impressive. Thank you. And I think that surprised a lot of people who bought the book at the time, who expected to read a lot about what had happened, you know, like you said, in, in Jim Crocker promotions and uh, the territory days, you know, later on in the 80s as the territories collapsed. And someone had even mentioned, you know, when Shane Douglas threw down the belt and someone mentioned it. I don't remember what page, but they were like, oh, it's on page 300 and something, you know, <laughs> meaning that you know, you're not going to get that, that, you know, there's not a chapter devoted to that. You know what I mean? So yeah, I really wanted to uh, dive into wrestling history with that book. And I, I will say right now that I, I kind of wish I had done that book differently in certain aspects, but as a whole, I'm extremely proud of what I was able to accomplish. And ECW press gave me a certain amount of freedom to create this kind of reference book that uh, a lot of other publishers probably wouldn't have allowed to go forward because it was just so full of information. It was, and, and people have said it, it is like a textbook and sure it is. And I, I prided myself on creating something that was full of meat and not fluff stories. I wanted to give dates and places and the, and the real information on what happened in the NWA's growth and how it was founded. And, you know, the entire backstory of the different people involved, all of that was very important to me. And I think, you know, there probably was a better way that I could have, you know, told the story in a narrative way. But altogether, I think the NWA book still stands the test of time in terms of wrestling history and just giving readers and fans and uh, researchers and historians a, a good book that will provide, you know, strong factual information. And that was what I set out to do. Well, it totally engrossed me. So, I mean, I get that. <laughs> that's just me. I mean, I, I don't think I understand some of the criticisms that you mentioned, but I didn't feel it at all. I mean, I really, especially if you look at the whole perspective of the whole history of the NWA, you really understand why you would take an approach like that because you covered, you know, what was essentially like the first, you know, I guess it was really focused on the first 30 years, but that was really kind of the heyday, you know, of it as a functioning organization i remember um at the time that i was reading the book i was working for this awful corporate job that i hated so much and i used to it may have contributed to me losing my job because i hated the job so much <laughs> that i used to take these extended lunch breaks and i would go off to like the, the nearest you know park for lunch and sit there and just read this book and completely lose track of time and then have to get back to the office. But I, I was like, I was absolutely sucked in by it. Um, but I wanted to mention, you know, what it feels in a way, like, for example, like you were saying, some people thought, hey, where's the horsemen? Where's this? Where's the territories? Where's that? And I almost felt like when you did Death of the Territories, that that was almost like an answer to that, you know, that it was like, okay, now we're going to focus on the stuff that you thought was going to be in the National Wrestling Alliance book, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, I really didn't even look at it like that. But, I, I, you know, people have mentioned, and this was not planned out in any shape or form, 
but they have looked at my NWA book, Capital Revolution and Death of the Territories as a trilogy. And I, again, that was no planning involved. It just kind of happened. And I really appreciate people looking at it that way because between those three books, you get a gigantic, you know, period of wrestling history, again, done the way that I wanted to do it and presenting the facts and giving, you know, certain information a certain way. And uh, for people to to take them and appreciate them and to to learn and, you know, enjoy them is, is something that I, I really do like. So that is something that, uh, you know, uh, that I'm very happy about and very proud of. Now, w- with this new one, um, the, the Ric Flair biography, obviously, there have been there have been other books about Ric Flair before. And, um, you know, one of them was written by another friend of mine, Keith Elliott Greenberg, who wrote kind of like the official WWE biography of Flair, which has its own interesting story behind it called To Be the Man. But this particular book, and again, I, I haven't read it yet. And maybe like a good host, I should have gotten the book and read it before I had you on. But the thing about the book to me is, you know, when you're doing a book on a subject like that, a person like that, who is about as mainstream as you can get in terms of like the public's awareness, um, it's almost like you have to find an angle. You have to find an approach that you're going to take. And I like this idea of, you know, the the last real world champion. And I think I know what you mean by that, but I was wondering if you could explain what you what you mean by that. Absolutely. I mean, there's actually two meanings behind it. It depends on how you want to look at it. For me, my perspective was that uh, in the territorial days, as they were collapsing, Ric Flair literally was the last representative of the NWA the world's champion to travel the globe, defending his title against people of different sizes and ability and wrestling night after night after night, defending the title and, uh, on, you know, the pinnacle of, of being prof- the professional wrestling world, being the NWA world champion. He was the last man to do that. So that was one side of it. The other side was kind of a tongue in cheek reference to, uh, when he appeared, uh, when they were first billing him in the WWF, as the real world's champion after he had departed WCW and the, the Jim Hurd uh, fallout in uh, 1991, where they had billed him on TV as the real world's champion. So I think there's kind of a, a double-sided thing going on there, but I do like looking at it from the fact that in terms of traveling the world and defending the title and being willing to, to wrestle anyone anywhere night after night after night, Blair was the man. And in my eyes, he was the last real representative of that great lineage and the last real world champion. And I love that connection because it's sort of, it's kind of ironic in a way that they build him that way. Like you said, when he came into the WWF, that was his whole gimmick that he was like the real, I'm the real claimant to the world championship. And in a way, you know, it it is the truth. If you look back now, historically, it came out to be that, like you said, that he was the last one because and it, and it even that's something that's even bigger than the NWA like it even predates the NWA like like um we're living in a time today in wrestling and it's been this way a while where world champions are really the you're the champion of a company you know you're the champion of WWE you're the champion of AEW you're the champion of Impact you know or you know th- this idea of yeah a world champion that transcends companies uh the NWA world title as it existed back then 
was the last example of that. But really, even before the, the NWA existed, you know, that was sort of how world champions in wrestling were viewed. They would go, you would have, I mean, yeah, they were, there were company world champions, even, even back in the thirties, like you had Paul Bowser had his world champion and that kind of thing. But you had this concept of this person is recognized as a world champion beyond just uh, a company like like the ring magazine recognizes you or the national wrestling association recognizes you or or you know just there's a general consensus of uh, that this person is a world champion and they're going to travel all over the place they're going to like you said defend against all different kinds of people you know that seemed to be something that went all the way back to you know uh, Hackenschmidt and Gotch and now it really hasn't been that way since uh, since the NWA as we knew it collapsed in the 80s because even Flair, right? And I'm sure you talk about this, but even Flair himself, by the time you get to like, I don't know, 85, 86, now because of what had happened with the NWA, he it really just became the world title of Jim Crockett promotions. There wasn't that traveling anymore. So that it really was the end of an era. Oh, definitely. And uh, for, and as you said, you know, going back through history, you know, the champions who wrestled across state lines and it didn't matter, there wasn't, they weren't constrained by, uh, you know, there was always wrestling syndicates. I'll put it that way. And you had mentioned this, you know, there, the Bowser and syndicate Jack Curley, there was always different titles, but they had a lot of respect because they did travel, you know, a guy would appear in, the new New York city and then go to San Francisco and Los Angeles. And it did feel like whoever was wearing the title at the time had more credibility and flair continued that. That was the thing about the NWA title. That's what Luthez did. That's what all the great champions did during their time when they were the world champion. And yeah, there might've been certain territorial constraints that they had to live by, but that didn't diminish the credibility they had as they appeared in Tokyo and uh, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and, across the territorial system and flair again was one of the hardest working guys we we had ever seen you know looking back at what he did in his traveling and how hard he worked and his conditioning i mean he was a machine in terms of being able to make date after date after date and never really losing his enthusiasm for being the world champion so i think yeah there's so many different things we can look at rick flair stood for and what he represented and how much credibility he gave the wrestling business in terms of comparing them to what Hulk Hogan and the WWE was doing, or even historically. So I think it's very important to, for me, it was very important for me to highlight that in this book to illustrate how important Flair was and, uh, you know, spell it out for, for readers. You know, I wanted to make the information known what Flair did, how hard he worked, his ups and downs. And that's what I focused on with this book. And, uh, you know, I hope readers enjoy that fact. And and just as important as the far flung traveling that he would do, and that you know the world champ, the NWA champs before him would do, is the fact that you're wrestling against competition. You're working with other wrestlers who are, you know, working for other promoters. It wasn't just like, for example, you talk about Hulk Hogan. Now he was the WWF world champion, and he's traveling the world. He's going all over the country. He's going West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, but but he's only wrestling other people that work for Vince McMahon <laughs> that are part of yep. the WWF organization. That's more like, it's almost like a traveling circus where, you know, the difference 
of these kind of transcending world champions is you had to have promoters work together with each other, almost like boxing in a way where the promoters would have to like come to an agreement. Like we're, you know, we want your world champion to come in and wrestle our guy and he's going to wrestle this guy. And, and these are the dates we want to do. Like, you know, it, it required a lot more cooperation and it also gave the, it created the idea or, you know, from a fan point of view, that this is a real world title. This is somebody who's, you know, defending it against anybody, uh, anywhere, anybody who seems seems to have earned it. And, and I think that is also what made the NWA title seem so important during those years, too. Definitely. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. And I think that's the tradition that it was built on. The NWA, you know, they wanted to have a credibility at the world championship uh, level. And you know, starting with Lou Thez back in the, you know, the late forties and through the fifties. I mean, he, he kind of set the, the tone for future champions to, to live up to what was expected of uh, the NWA world title holder to travel the globe, wrestle individuals that they had never met before, uh, put on a good show, defend the title successfully, you know, protect the belt, which obviously Flair didn't need to do, you know, in like, you know, in a shooter kind of fashion, but he, uh, he definitely had to maintain the credibility of the title, and he did. He presented himself as a champion in and out of the ring. He was a very colorful guy, as we all know. But there were certain standards that the NWA title demanded, and Flair lived up to it. I mean, he, he wrestled everyone. He would go into a new territory and wrestle a guy who might not have been very skilled, but Flair would bring him up to his level, and, and they'd have a great match because Flair was able to carry him. And he or he would go into an area and he would wrestle Steamboat or Piper or someone who he had extensive background with. And they would, you know, go for 60 minutes and put on a, a classic. So Flair was able to and then he could wrestle like a guy like Bruiser Brody, who is a brawler. And Flair would have to change his style to to, you know, have a good match with someone like that. And they would also put on a, a classic. So it was just a matter of being able to be a chameleon in a way where you're so athletic and so smart in a way to, to professional wrestling that you can go into an area and wrestle whoever the local guy was going to be without any, you know, talking beforehand, no, you know, spending an hour in the locker room preparing and talking about what they were going to do and literally going out there and having a classic and Flair did it night after night. Yeah. And there's something that I think I first, you know, it might've been something I read in, in the NWA book that really stuck with me. And it also has to do with flair, which is this idea that, you know, um, Sam Muchnick had been kind of booking the world champion for so many years, all through the most of the Thez years and through the 60s and everything and into the Briscoe and Funk and all that Dory Funk. He was the one that was kind of handling it. And then when it changed to Jim Barnett, and I think that starts with Terry Funk, that there was like a. There was like a shift in the philosophy where that's where they started having the 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 mainly the heel world champions that would, you know, come into the territory and and would be immediately the villain. And, and their job would be to make the baby faces look as strong as possible. And you'd have the the baby faces, the top baby faces always chasing him. And and that's kind of like, um, you know, that carried on through race, of course. And that was and Flair was was the last one to do that, where I mean, even though he there were certain places where he was a baby face for some of that time, 
but he was he was the last of that of of, of that kind of idea too of the heel world champ who you know was gonna make your local star look like a superhero and that's what he did you're absolutely right i mean he was tremendous heel and working against the local baby faces and you know you know giving them so much offense during a match i mean if you go back and watch some of those matches where he would give you know some of these guys so much offense during a match that you actually thought the baby face was going to upset the champion and win the title but that kind of drama within a match at those times on local TV or at the local arenas throughout the territory system drummed up a lot of attention and interest for professional wrestling and for the NWA and for Flair too, because fans wanted to see him get beat, but they also were, you know, amazed and awestruck by his, you know, his style and his interview and, you know, the, the, you know, the 10 pounds of gold and his Rolexes and his suit. So Flair as a, as an entertainer outside the ring in his interviews would reel them in, but in the ring, he was a professional and he went in there and would wrestle these really great matches, again, even against guys who were up and comers and put them over to the point where you would think that they, a guy, a local guy would win. And he even lost a few non-title matches on, on the road to build up, you know, future houses, but it was all a matter of doing business and Flair knew what it took to, to, to drum up attention and to build houses and, he was willing, he didn't have an ego that prevented him from, from doing those things. He was willing to do it for the business. And he, he put over a lot of guys and made a lot of careers by, you know, giving these guys, you know, a spot and giving, pushing them and allowing them to, to, to dominate in certain matches. Look at what Sting did in 1988 where, at the Clash, where it totally, you know, built this new a tremendous uh, hero for professional wrestling. And, he did it throughout his career, Ric Flair did, and that was just another thing he did, another uh, point in his uh, storied career. But, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right about his being, you know, working as a heel and going into these territories and, you know, putting on a, a great show night after night. And people, I mean, my understanding, too, is that even there's been, there were criticisms of him sometimes, or even, at, I don't know about at the time, but in later years, that he was almost too giving, that he gave too much to the challengers he would sell too much or he would make them look too strong you know people like george south who you know he'd have because he who he he respected them you know and he wanted to make them look good and and they wound up looking almost too good like that would be like one of the criticisms like hey wait a minute the nwa world champion also needs to look strong too he can't look like somebody that anybody could beat you know and you want to compare that with what hogan was doing because hogan was you know, the formula for Hogan's matches was, you know, he would wrestle a big giant guy or he would wrestle someone who, you know, some villain, you know, who was, you know, that had a lot of heat and the the villain would, would pummel him around the ring and look like he was going to beat him. And within an eight minute match or a 10 minute match, you know, Hogan would take some, some uh, a very small amount of bumps, but then he would hulk up and, and win the match in a dramatic fashion. And you would get the sense that Hulk Hogan was unbeatable. And that was, he was an like, invincible Hulk Hogan, you know, this, uh, you know, what they, they used to say, he's the incredible Hulk Hogan or whatever it was. So yeah, he was uh, an invincible character of professional wrestling where on the other side of the fence, you had Ric Flair, who was a professional wrestler. And he'd go out there and wrestle guys like, uh, like you mentioned, uh, uh, George South and, you know, Ricky Morton, some of the smaller yes. guys, and he would take a lot of bumps and he would, you know, drop, you know, drop kicked all over the ring and, 
you know, he would look, get, look like he was getting a beat an inch of his life and, you know, and he'd blade and bleed all over the ring. And uh, so, yeah, he would have these harsh battles, but at the same time, you know, Flair also looked unbeatable because he would find a way to win. He, he, whether he was cheating or he would hold the tights or put his, uh, you know, feet on the ropes for a pin, Flair was unbeatable in another way. But I think smart fans knew what they were seeing with Flair his ability to, again, carry a, a, an opponent to a great match, to make something out of what could have been nothing and make it special and put on a, a classic that was routine for him. And I think fans who understood that in the 1980s could see the difference between what Hogan was doing and what Flair was doing. And I think that's why I was always, even as a kid, I tended to gravitate more towards Flair than Hogan. Even when, you know, in my pre-cable days, my my main in the Northeast, my main exposure to Flair, which was really through magazines, because especially they were putting them over like crazy. And I know part of that was because the WWF had shut them out and they were trying to kind of compensate for having no access to Hogan. But I mean, even in those early years, even as a kid, in my early years as a fan, I I kind of saw through Hogan a little bit like the mystique really wore off quickly where I just started saying, oh my God, this guy, and I'm I'm 12 years old thinking this, 13 years old, this guy just has the same match every time and it's really short and he never really looks like he's in that much danger for more than a minute or two. And, you know, <laughs> I we always know he's going to win and he's going to do his pose down and every, you know, every pay-per-view i love when people fans complain today that things are too boring or repetitive and i go listen every single pay-per-view for eight years ended the same exact way with with hulk hogan yeah. po posing in the ring as the uh, you know the world champion still undefeated and with flair like you said even though if i was a little smarter to the business as a kid I would have understood Flair's not losing either, you know, but there was this idea that he could be beat. It was more interesting. It was more competitive. Like I saw one of the first NWA matches I saw was his title defense against Ricky Steamboat because it was at um, in 84. I think it was at uh, the one because they did it in the Northeast. I'm thinking the, yeah. it was the, the Meadowlands or maybe in Philadelphia, yeah. right? Meadowlands. They had that was the, uh, the night of champions. Yeah. Right. And I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, that match was basically the reason why when Flair dropped the title to Kerry Von Erich, he had to get it back right away because Crockett wanted him to be the defending world champ at that Meadowland show against Steamboat because he was trying to make a point in the Northeast. But like I saw that on a bootleg tape, you know, and me and my friends are sitting there going like, oh, man, this is so much better. <laughs> this is like. This is like, this feels real. Like there's just something about it and we couldn't put our finger on it. And now looking back, I think that was a big part of it. He just made everything seem more competitive. And it also didn't hurt the fact that every now and then he actually did lose it, even though he got it back, he would lose it. So you, and which also was something race did. So you never quite knew like, well, maybe he is, you know, maybe he will lose it now. You, you know, you, there was more of a sense of unpredictability. Yeah, and I think that was important to professional wrestling at the time. And, and again, it showed Flair's, uh, he wasn't, uh, Flair wasn't ego driven. I, I mean, there's egos in the business, but Flair always did what was best for the business and the company. And yeah, he, uh, he definitely lost the title and, and got it back. And 
Uh, and he was the cornerstone of what Jim Crockett was building uh, over there until they got their, you know, had their the decline. But uh, yeah, I think going back to your other point, I think, uh, you know, I think it's the NWA style as well. I mean, we have Flair who was at the top of this pyramid who, again, he main event of the show, he closed out the show and he, he, he did it perfectly. I mean, he was a great champion. He was a great wrestler at the time and everyone was, everyone knew that he was the best. And, uh, but if you look at the NWA style up and down, it was just more, I, I don't know, I'll say it more violent. It was more, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it, it was all adult, adult oriented, but it seemed to be oriented to older people rather than the cartoon kind of style of what the WWF was doing. And I think, you know, just like you, I got, you know, I started watching wrestling and I, I caught WWF uh, Saturday night's main event and, you know, the colorfulness of Hogan and Savage, all of that stuff, you know, really, you know, you know, when, when you're a young uh, child and you see that, it's like, whoa, you know, you're, you're kind of blinded by all that's happening and you're really taken into it. And if you end up liking professional wrestling, you know, if you, you know, you, you see the WF and then you're exposed to the NWA at the time, then yes, of course, you're going to want to, you know, if you're going to see not only how the NWA was doing business at the time in terms of, like I said, the, the more, you know, the adult style angles, the hardcore type matches where it was real professional wrestling, but with blood war games, that kind of stuff. But then, you know, um, you know, you would, you know, you would just be, and in, in caught up in what the NWA was doing and, and comparing it to what the WWF was. And it was like night and day. And for me, that's what happened. And then on top of that, learning about the NWA's tremendous history and going from there. So it just kind of opens up everything at that point where, you know, you start with the WWF, you, you see what, you know, the NWA had going on and the, the tremendous wrestling that they had going on. And then the NWA's tremendous history. So for me, that's the route I took in terms of, opening the door to, to this business's history. And uh, it, it's, I'm still riding the ride to this day. And I think uh, that Vince wanted Flair even before he finally wound up coming over there, right? Wasn't there interest? Because I know um, yeah. there's that Larry King interview, that really famous thing where Larry King asks him point blank, I guess somebody had... Larry King had done his homework. I don't know what somebody had a really good researcher and he mentioned Flair's name and he's like, would you have any interest in this kid Flair? Like something like that. And Vince was talking about Ric Flair and how he was interested. Yeah, no, uh, I, from the stories that I've heard, there was a lot of interest. There was actually rumors, I think going back to 84, 85, I, I read something in a report that said that, uh, when a lot of the guys were first jumping over to uh, Titan Sports, that uh, that the WWF was interested in Flair, but of course Flair was, you know, locked down at the time. But you know, going you know a few years later in 1988, the old story was that Flair, uh, that McMahon wanted Flair for uh, SummerSlam '88 to wrestle Randy Savage. That's always uh, something I had heard over the years. Uh, but yeah, it it is an interesting thing. You know, that was the dream match. You know, the magazines always talked about it. Flair versus Hogan, that's what people wanted to see. Uh, you know, I know, it, you know, had we gotten it on the on the big stage at WrestleMania, it would have definitely been a, a highlight, even though, you know, it was kind of a mix of, of styles. But it would have been what everybody was waiting for. Unfortunately, that never happened. We only got it at house shows and then, you know, WCW did it later. But in the 80s, when everybody was talking about the big two, 
of course, it was Hogan and Flair. And, uh, you know, that would have been a match everybody wanted to see. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to see, not only did I get to see one of those house show matches, but it was Madison Square Garden. And I think Damn, they, wow. yeah, I think they had two there back to back. And I know I was at the one, it was November 91. And I think they might've done wow. it again in yeah. December, but this was the first, it wasn't their first match ever. They had been doing it. They had done a few by that point for like a month or two, but this was Madison square garden. So I have to say it may have been the most, it probably was, it had to be the most high profile of all the house show matches they did. And let me tell you something that night, again, it was because the NWA had this cool factor among New York fans. I mean, New York fans were known to be a pretty smart fan base and they knew about it and it just seemed like the cool alternative. So that crowd was, I don't know. I want to say it was like 60, 40 pro flair on that night. Wow. There was a lot of signs for flair. I, I, I made one of them. There were a lot of, a <laughs> lot of uh, cheers for him and booing of Hogan. And let me tell you for, for people that, don't know the finish of the match was that and they probably did this in every town but the finish of the match was that flair hit hogan with brass knuckles and pinned him and then um they kind of did the dusty finish thing in a way where then tony Gurria ran in the ring you know backstage agents run in the ring and tell the referee what happened they restart the match and of course hogan wins but let me tell you, that, yeah. was, that was not a popular decision. When he pinned Hogan, people didn't care how he did it. You know, the place went nuts. I mean, it was like a celebration that this heel, you know, pinning Hulk Hogan. And then when he when they restarted it, there was this collective groan of just like, oh, now we know what's going to happen. Oh, my God. But like that was a big deal. And it was so unfortunate that. They never were able to really give it the treatment it deserved on the big stage in the WWF. I guess it had something to do with the fact that Vince had already made his promise. Although I don't know why, you know, Vince McMahon is not known for keeping all his promises, but Vince had promised Sid that he was going to get the match with Hogan at WrestleMania that year. And so he kept his promise. Yeah. And, you know, we, as wrestling fans, we, we wish it would have been different. I mean, I think that was the match everyone was waiting for. And I think a lot of people were shocked that it got so much, uh, they got so much uh, ground in terms of uh, running that, uh, that match in house shows. They just, they ran it. And I think, like you said, it was two times at least around the circuit in a lot of the major cities. And I don't know offhand how many times they wrestled. They wrestled. I think I have it in the book, but yeah, dozens and dozens of times throughout the, you know, North America and, you know, burning out what could have been or what was seen as the biggest moneymaker in terms of WrestleMania. But yeah, like you said, you know, McMahon had other ideas, you know, if it was a promise to Sid or, or however it went down, it definitely, uh, you know, it, it changed what could have been. And, uh, but, you know, I'm sure seeing it at a house show, which I never did, you know, that's a, a tremendous memory to have. And, you know, you have that and, and a lot of other people do. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, again, Flair and Hogan, they, they have a tremendous history, even, you know, their later matches got a lot of, you know, they got a lot of, you know, they ran it in the ground again and, you know, Flair put them over a bunch of times, but, you know, it, it was a, it, you know, for what it was, you know, I, I think uh, the two top guys of the eighties, it still is remembered fondly, as you said. And, uh, 
you know, we, we still look back and, 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 and think about what these guys, you know, who they were and, and what they were able to bring to the table. They were bigger than life superstars for sure. Yeah, I almost kind of felt like doing Flair and Savage. Like Savage was like the consolation prize at WrestleMania. Like <laughs> for whatever reason, Vince deciding that Hogan and Flair wasn't going to work. And then he goes, well, I guess I'll just do Flair and Savage. But because it seemed to me like it was the perfect setup. You know, you had Hogan had lost the belt. He had been kind of screwed out of the belt. Now you have Ric Flair. He's won it, but he never beat Hogan. You know, so you have the big WrestleMania match and I'm doing my 30 year old fantasy booking here, but you have the WrestleMania match. And then, of course, Hogan regains the title and there's much rejoicing like it's the it's the easiest thing to book in the world. And I guess all these years later, people still postulate what the hell happened. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it should have happened. I think we all would have stood behind that. I, you know, that plan. But like you said, things veered off in another direction and, and maybe flair and, and savage i mean looking back they they worked well in the ring together and they had a lot of classic matches themselves but in terms of what fans wanted and what we kind of expected was coming down you know the the river there was hogan and flair at wrestlemania and yeah i think you know we're always gonna think about what could have been Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a missed opportunity. But the funny thing is, like you said, like we were saying, all this stuff, when it finally did happen, when it did go down in the WWF, it was already kind of like Flair was already, you know, past his prime years by that point. And Hogan was, too. So it was almost like um, even at the time, I remember there was this sense of like, wow, if this had happened you know, five years ago, even five years ago, as small a fraction of time as that, it would have meant so much more, you know, especially because Flair, you know, at the peak of his time as the NWA world champion, that would have been a massive thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that would have been, you know, what they did back in the heyday, title versus title, the Super Bowl of wrestling, you know, getting the two guys together and having, you know, they could have sold out a, a stadium for sure. And, uh, got a lot of a mileage out of that, but uh, you know, again, you know, wrestling had changed as we know, and uh, you know, all the the you know, we were in the the midst of a tremendous wrestling war at that time, you know, as we we all know, and uh, but yeah, it was again, I have to say, just a missed opportunity all around, not to capitalize on what could have been you know record-setting business, and you know, created a lot uh, of new memories for for wrestling fans. And that's an interesting thing to me because, um, you know, those kind of matches, they, as you know, pre pre uh, Vince McMahon kind of taking everything over, those kind of matches did happen from time to time, where, you, like you said, where you'd have like a Super Bowl of wrestling, and it even had happened in the WWF where Harley Race came in and wrestled Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden, you know, title for title, and those kind of matches, there would never be a clear winner. Obviously, we know now they're never going to allow those titles to be unified but for whatever reason um they didn't do that with flair they did they had he wrestled backland but backland came to him backland came to the omni and you know he would wrestle i think he wrestled didn't he wrestle uh, i think he wrestled rick martell in a uh, he did nwa versus awa but they never you know i saw this promo recently which i thought was so cool because it's like from 1982 or so, or three, like Flair was in the middle of, I think his first title reign. 
And he says something in the interview like, hey, if they want me to come up to Madison Square Garden and 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 go and wrestle Bob Backlund, I'll do that. And I'll prove that I am the real world's champion. You know, and he's saying this like eight years before he would actually do exactly that, like come to the WWF claiming to yep. be the real world champion. But it's interesting to me why that never happened. That well, you know, it, it would have been what a great coup that would have been to bring Ric Flair in let's say 82, 83 to Madison Square Garden for a match with Backlund. I think if Vince Sr. would have still been in charge, I think maybe more of those options would have been on the table. I think with Junior's takeover and, and you know his new vision for what the WWF was going to become, I, I think that took a lot of options off the table for what you know what kind of dealings there was going to be behind the scenes with these promoters. Of course, Vince Sr. You know he knew everybody and everyone knew him. They trusted him, and I think people would have been happy to do business with him to create something like we said, some, some sort of masterful promotional event where, you know, the, all the champions and different wrestlers, I mean, that could have been done. It could have been an amazing thing, but I think there was a lot of hostility with what Vince Jr. was planning and what he was doing and how he was bringing wrestlers aboard and uh, declaring war, you know, advancing into different territories. So I think at that time it was more, you know, the NWA and AWA were on guard uh, towards what he was up to versus, you know, optimistic about, hey, let's do business, let's make some money. So, you know, I think wrestling was evolving at the time. And I, I think uh, while we as fans were gaining a lot, I think we were also losing a lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. And now, like I said, like we were saying before, now we're in this era where there is no such thing as a world champion who transcends uh, promotional boundaries like I know and I don't mean this you know I'll be as diplomatic as can be w with the NWA as it currently stands you know the NWA of today is not what it was it's not a governing body or promotional you know alliance it is a wrestling company like any other wrestling company and even though you know especially when when Nick Aldis had it uh, they there were efforts made where he would he would go to other promotions and wrestle you know their people and go outside of the nwa bounds but um being the nwa world champion uh, in you know 2019 is a very very different thing from being the nwa world heavyweight champion you know in 1985 or 80 or 75 you know where you're at the pinnacle of the business you are the most visible world champion there is so you know we don't have anything like that today and i don't i don't hold out any hope that we ever will again it just seems like more than ever you know these these world champions are really just kind of like branded uh you know uh, intellectual property you know yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think those days that we finally remember and we, we study and research and we watch uh, videos of, I think those days are unfortunately gone. Uh, I think there's always a hope. Uh, there's always the question, can the territories come back? And I think the NWA over the last 20 years ha have tried to have different uh, territories per se, different companies, different parts of their organization uh, in different parts of the country and have some sort of champion travel the circuit. I think, uh, I think that idea is probably not as strong as it, it once was. Like you said, there's been 
guys that who have traveled around and tried to give credibility to the NWA name. And I think for independent wrestling, for the NWA and what it's doing, I think it has credibility in terms of its history. And I think that if they can uh, build upon that, and I think they do have strengths, but uh, I, I, I think if they build upon it, I think there is a, a place for the NWA in today's marketplace. Unfortunately, again, for, for wrestling fans and for people that love the old NWA and wrestling history, it will never be what it once was. Well, it seems like with this book and, you know, uh, now that if you look at all the books that you've done, it almost feels like there's like a flow from one book to the next. You know, like I said, you, you've got the National Wrestling Alliance book and then, you know, there's the book that focuses on the McMahons and the death of the territories. And then you do you do a Buddy Rogers book and then you do a book on the other Nature Boy. So you've got like both of them. So I'm curious <laughs> what, you know, are you do you have anything in the works that maybe you could let people know about or what you're thinking about for future projects related to wrestling? I know you write other things besides wrestling, but it, in relation to wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly have ideas. I, I won't say that, you know, there's an itch in my bones now to to really dive into another project. I have a biography uh, that I would love to do, and then I have more of an organizational kind of a book that I would love to do. Uh, I can't, I don't really, I would want to stop myself from making any formal announcements on those just because they're just ideas right now. There's nothing, I have no book contract. I actually have a uh, kind of said to publicly that I was going to take a little bit of a hiatus from, from working on research and, and uh, writing for the, for a little while. I've had a few health hiccups the last year where I'm just trying nothing too overly serious, but just a few things that are going to keep me on the sidelines just for a little longer. And I kind of, you know, as, as I've researched and, and committed so much of my life to these books, which I'm so proud of, I think, uh, you know, I have to, to learn to have more, time for family and more time for health. And I think once you, and you, you'll probably agree, you know, once you dive into a project, you give yourself over to it and you kind of become, you know, uh, a slave to what you're, you're doing. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, it, for me, it's, it's an all encompassing kind of thing. And uh, I think at this stage, I just need a little bit of a break to kind of regroup and catch my breath. But I, I definitely look forward to diving into a future project and, Hopefully I'll be able to do it in a more healthy manner with more balance, I'll say, and, uh, you know, continue building upon uh, these books. But in the meantime, I know there's guys like you out there writing great books and there's a lot of other great historians and researchers, you know, coming up with great ideas and, and coming up with classic books. So I think, you know, in terms of reading and, uh, you know, uh, for wrestling fans, I think we'll, we'll definitely stay busy following you all and what you guys have going on. And uh, in the future, hopefully I'll dive back in and continue what what I started. Well, I definitely agree with what you're saying about, you know, that balance and stuff. And it really does. Absolutely. I mean, that's my experience as well. It does take over your life and having a break in between is helpful. I sort of made I don't want to call it a mistake, but maybe a slight misjudgment when I did the Sheik book, Blood and Fire. I had agreed to do another book that was not wrestling related. It, it's my book, Superheroes, about the history of superheroes. And those they kind of coincided with each other because I had pitched them at about the same time, not realizing that both pitches were going to be accepted, which was probably not the smartest thing. 
And so I pushed off, you know, I started working on the superheroes book almost immediately after the manuscript for blood and fire was done, but all the post, all the post writing stuff wasn't done yet. So I'm starting this new book. I'm writing it while at the same time, you know, we're doing like photography and layout and approvals and things for blood and fire. And I did kind of go a little nutty, like 2021 into 2022 for me was very nutty. And I caught my breath a little bit with this new book, Irresistible Force. I gave myself at least, I think it was at least half a year where I wasn't really thinking about books. And like you said, I think, you know, my family was grateful and my kids, when I I told my kids, I told my kids, you know, then they were for one of the books I did. I don't remember which one. And they were a lot younger now. My kids, my older kids are grown. But I told them, hey, I got a new book deal. And they were just like, oh, no, (laughs) we're not going to see you for a year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always and I try to build as much time as possible, always knowing that it's going to take longer than you think. And it never seems to be enough time because there's other things going on in your life. There's other work. There's family things. There's other obligations. And um, the and it's also the curse of when you work for yourself, when you're doing your own thing, the curse of that is you don't ever know when to stop. You don't like Definitely. I sit here. There's times where I'll go, oh, I think I'm going to take a day off and not transcribe any interviews about Gorilla Monsoon. And then and then I get like yep. a little angel on my shoulder going like, uh-uh, you don't want to don't lose that day because your deadline is looming and it's like, well, there really isn't a day off when you work for yourself. Uh, yeah. We, we feel each other's pain because that's exactly, <laughs> and I'll tell you with uh, the flare book, I was doing it during the pandemic. And uh, one of the major things that I was relying on so heavily was going to be the court documents. And when the pandemic was, was, we were in the midst of that, all the courts uh, shut down and they were not providing documentation. And of course I was not going to travel to these courthouses because, you know, again, worry about, you know, everything that was happening. And, and uh, so it was a, a big stress on my shoulders at the time because what, what, you know, my deadline was coming up. It literally was like, you know, a month away and I still hadn't gotten what I needed for my sourcing for additional notes. And I didn't even know what, in terms of what was going to be in the documents that I was going to be able to use. So luckily everything worked out, but that, added level of stress, which I know you can sympathize with. I mean, it just, you know, you know, you're, you're, you have, you have a schedule in your head. You're like, all right, I can complete, you know, for me, I I try to do a chapter every two weeks or something. I don't know. Every book's different, but if, you know, if I'm doing something like that, I plan out, okay, six months, you should be able to knock out this, you know, in that amount of time and you have, you know, time to, to rest, but it never happens like you want. And, you know, for me, you know, with the, with the flare book, it definitely did not happen like I wanted and the stress just built. And, and I think that coincided with what I had going on with my health and, you know, my family at the time and, you know, just everything was building up in, in a very negative way. And I, I, you know, I was pretty much adamant at that point that I needed a break and my wife was saying it and it was just a matter of, you know, we gotta, you know, we gotta find a good balance, you know, if we're going to do another book, let's do it in a healthy way. We're, you know, you're not so stressed, you know, seven days a week, you know, you know, I'm up in the middle of the night writing and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I I enjoy doing, but 
again, how do you maintain a family and your responsibilities if you're, you're up all night and you're sleeping all day? You know what I mean? And it, it's, it, to me, I always enjoy writing at night because, you know, there's a lot of peace and quiet, but you can't really have a functional life and, and maintain a, your, your spot in your family and to the, the greater world if that's what you're, you're doing week after week after week. And then on top of it, as you know, to have to bounce back to a regular schedule after doing it like that. I mean, it's just, there, there are a lot of challenges, as you know. And, you know, for me, it's just a matter of, you know, I need a breather. I don't know when I'm going to, you know, uh, do something new, but uh, I think I'll know when I, when I know and uh, when it feels right, I'll, I'll be right there to, to handle it. You see, well, first of all, these words, every one of them, could also be spoken by me and it would be <laughs> completely true. Um, and, and I hope people listening to this now, if you read either of our books, you realize, or other people's books, the the blood and sweat and dedication and sacrifice <laughs> that goes into yeah. the books that you enjoy. It is very real. It's absolutely yep. a real thing. We put our hearts and souls into these books that you hold in your hands or, you know, listen on headphones or whatever you're doing, just know that our hearts and souls go into these things. And I think uh, we could probably do a whole hour show just talking about, you know, the sacrifices we've made and, you know, the different uh, quirky situations we found, you know, ourselves in because, you know, yeah, being a writer, it's, there's a lot of upside. There's a, there's some downside, you know, which I'm not critical of. I'm just admitting that, you know, it is, you know, it is a job. It's not easy. It is something you have to be committed to. And uh, there, there are effects, you know, there, it affects your life. It can affect your health. It can affect your, your mental state. You know, there's a lot to it when you dive in and create a book and you're committed to it and you want to give readers a book of, of excellence. And just like as you're doing and, and I try to do, and a lot of other guys are men and women are out there working on these books and documenting history and uh, you know, it's just not an easy thing and it is a big commitment. And like I said, I'm sure we could go another hour just laughing about <laughs> stories that, you know, things that we've, we've done or our situations we found ourselves in. Absolutely. But we will not because because we are <laughs> such dedicated writers, fathers, people, human beings, whatever. We got a lot of stuff going on, so we can't talk forever. But before we go, if you could just and I'm sure, you know, it's 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 the usual channels and things but for people that are interested in finding getting the book or learning more about it find you know reading about it where where would you direct them absolutely it's available anywhere books are sold at this point uh you can go to the publisher's website ecwpress.com it's available on amazon uh you can reach out to me uh through social media or at uh through my website i have a contact there legacyofwrestling.com i have uh, a limited number of signed books uh, to uh, are, are available, but uh, yeah, books should be available in stores and online. And of course, the full title of the book is "The Last Real World Champion: The Legacy of Nature Boy Ric Flair," and it is from ECW Press, as is my book "Blood and Fire" and my next book "Irresistible Force." So. Um, easy to find, you know, in, in this day and age, people always ask me like, well, how, how do I find your book? Where do I get it? And I just think in my head, like, just, I don't know, you, you, you've heard of Google, right? You know, just type in yeah. the name of the book. It's not that hard. Very easy. Yeah. Right. But, but I like to give, uh, I like to make things as easy as possible for the people. And, um, 
And thanks so much for coming on the show and taking out some of your very, very precious time, Tim, to do this. And I have to tell you, I say it to many people, but this is absolutely true. Um, I must have you back at a certain point to talk more because we may not be able to go another hour now, but I'd like to go another hour at some point. I would love to, Brian. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate all your words. And I'm, I feel like uh, I just want to say again that you're, you're leading a new front for, for wrestling research as a historian. And I'm, I'm very supportive of what you are, you're building in your, your books. And uh, I definitely look forward to your, your next project. So uh, keep up the great work, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you have it, folks. My enlightening conversation with Tim Hornbaker. Tim, thank you so much for coming aboard Shut Up and Wrestle at long last. And as we mentioned during the show, Tim's new book, The Last Real World's Champion, The Legacy of the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, is available now. Please go and pick it up. Tim has a reputation for excellence built upon other such books as The National Wrestling Alliance, Capital Revolution, The Death of the Territories, Master of the Ring, his biography of Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, and now his newest on Nature Boy Ric Flair. Tim, thank you once again. And thank you listeners once again for checking out the show. Keep on listening. Next week's episode, we will have as our guest another member of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated staff, the team, in fact, a current member of the editorial staff, and the former editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Harry Burkett. Harry will be my guest next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. Other guests coming in the weeks to come. Here's a big one for you. Gary Michael Capetta, the legendary ring announcer, is on his way to Shut Up and Wrestle. Very proud to state that. Jamie Hemmings from Slam Wrestling will be here, as well as the return of UK wrestling historian Bradley Craig. Those are all fun conversations that I can't wait to share with you. So keep listening to this show. And you can find it really wherever you find your podcasts. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict. As well as, of course, our website, suawpod.com. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Always something interesting happening there. And I thank you for taking part in the conversation. Thank you to all the members of that group. Other projects that I work on that you might be interested in checking out, as we mention here all the time, the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard. Listen to it every single morning at thewrestlingnews.com, or you can also find it on the YouTube page of Arcadian Vanguard. The books that I write, the books that I have published, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. They are both available wherever books are sold, and I also have signed copies for sale. If you are interested in one of those, reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top, Inside the Ropes magazine is available at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, with the PWI 500 issue out now, is available at pwi-online.com. 
If you're looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My Facebook page, my author page is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying, take it easy, but take it. So long, wrestling fans.